Hello and welcome to the Edify Podcast. This is designed for you, preacher, teacher, shepherd, deacon of the kingdom of God, for your edification, for your uplifting, for your ministry. Well, hello. It is um, Tuesday, September the 28th, and uh, I kind of wanted to give a, a pre-podcast podcast podcast. Uh, about last season, uh, I know we've slept since then, and no summer had passed, and August and September has now come and gone. And uh, the new season, if you were going to episode, it's going to release on uh, th- this Friday, October the first. And uh, but anyway, I want to recap a little bit, give you some bullet points about where we've been, uh, just to just to brush things up as we as we think about teaching and preaching God's word specifically. I know last year was all about the servant, and the servant was in mind. And it's still going to be in mind, but that was more of a broad stroke. I want to chisel it down to specifically teaching and preaching God's Word. Every New Testament Christian is to be a teacher uh, of God's Word. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell within you. Uh, Let it richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, and that's with thankfulness in your hearts to God, obviously. So all believers, in some sense, are to be teachers uh, of the Word of God. Nobody is excused from this. Uh, Everybody has been uh, placed in their role. They're born with their genders, and they know biblically where their gender roles are. Um, But every every New Testament Christian is a teacher of God's Word. At least that's the ones in my Bible. But as we think about the preacher's heart, uh, the teacher's heart, uh, and the character, I want to kind of give you some points, as I said. So here's, here's number one. As a teacher and as a preacher specifically, cultivate a deep, personal love relationship with the Lord. J. Kent Edwards said on one occasion, great preaching begins with a great relationship with God. It is impossible for a preacher to compensate a relationship or compensate for a relationship that has gone cold. For, quote, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart, end quote. So the highest priority for any person who wants to teach God's word to God's people is knowing and loving God in a very specific, personal, intimate, deep way. Our Lord said on one occasion to Jeremiah, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things. So the Lord delights the fact that we boast that we understand and know Him. Wisdom is in teaching, uh, if you will. Wisdom in teaching is important as is strength. Preaching requires hard work. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, the Jeremiah passage for your notes is Jeremiah 9, 20, 9, 23, and 24. But nothing is as important as knowing and loving God. John 17 and verse 3. I'm thinking uh, Mark 12, 28 and 30. Uh, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. Uh, he made it personal. He says, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may, I may gain Christ. Philippians 3 and verse 8. Paul considered in the context his Jewish uh, patronage uh, his his hierarchy or his his historicity, but Paul considers everything that men count valuable to be worthless in comparison with knowing Jesus. So that's how paramount knowing the Lord was to Paul, as it should be for me, Jake Sutton, and for you, the listener. So before you're a preacher, a teacher, or a servant in any capacity for the king, you are a son, an adopted son of the king, Galatians 4, 5, Ephesians 1, 5. So he, he adopted you. He loves you. He's not concerned first and foremost about your ministry and your service. He's interested in you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He, meets, he wants to meet with you often and dine with you. Uh, Revelation 3 and verse 20 comes to my mind. So he wants to hear what's on your heart. Proverbs 15 and verse 8, 1 Peter 5, 7. And as your loving father, he wants to encourage you and teach you and lead you. He made you, uh, and and specifically for the reason that you're in, so that you could know him and enjoy him. 
now and throughout all eternity. And John 17, 3 again pops up. So before we get into any practical how-to advice on teaching, I, I want to exhort you, fellow brother, know your Father well. Spend time daily meditating in the Scriptures, thinking, thinking them over and over, dwelling on them, exposition, uh, exegesis, uh, you're meditating on these things. You're brooding over these things. You're exalting and you're exalting in these things and, and praying to God uh, about the things that you see in His Word and doing so with thanksgiving, with praise, determination that, that you're going to obey and do with a heart of joy, not for sermon preparation. That, that can happen later in the day. But what I'm talking about is your own regular quiet time with the Lord. During that time in the scriptures, you're, you're not asking God, what do you want me to say to the congregation? Or what do you want me to teach in this class? Uh, but you need to be asking the question, God, what do you want to teach me? Because as a son, your quiet time with your father is not, it's not preparation for the next sermon that you're about to preach. It's your time to bless God and enjoy Him for, for your own benefit and for your own edification. So now this isn't to say that knowing God deeply won't affect your sermons because it, it absolutely will. People who know God well make the best teachers and preachers, And if you think about it. Would you rather listen to a, a lecture about President Ronald Reagan by someone who has read a couple of books about him or, or a person who uh, actually knew him personally, somebody who lived with him and ate with him and, and was even adopted as a son? I don't know about you, <clears throat> but I, I'd rather listen to the person who <laughs> who knew old Ronnie rather than Ronald Reagan. <clears throat> I think the same is true with God's people who are hungry to know the Lord. They want to hear from someone who knows God deeply and personally, someone whose relationship with the Lord is more than academic. It's uh, something that I tell Piedmont Road all the time. I'm not going to be the kind of preacher who, who flaunts his biblical knowledge, who shoots out a thousand memory verses you know, in a sermon. I don't want to be one who pushes his weight around as though he's academically all there. I, I don't want to master the Scriptures. I want to be mastered by the Scriptures, and there's a difference. And preachers specifically, when we get up there and we boast and we brag and we show our knowledge, and, and especially if you're an MSOP student, you can boast the very fact that you know the whole book of James back and forward, left and right, and you had to memorize it all at one time. That's not going to do you any good in the kingdom of Jesus. What will do you good is what, what the Holy Spirit taught and wrought in and through you through the book of James and how you're going to allow that to alter and affect your ministry from here on out. So your faith needs to be genuine, not academic. It's deep, it's rich, it's personal, and it shows up when, when you are in the pulpit. God's people are attracted to that kind of teacher. And for the preacher who, who regularly draws near to God and knows Him in that manner, preaching is not drudgery, it's a joy. He, he's not telling people about a remote deity. Uh, he, he's telling people about His Abba, Father, Romans 8 and 15. He's able to explain to the congregation what the Scriptures actually teach because he studied it you know, adequately, um, passionately. Uh, how it has affected his own life. But he's also able to share it out of the overflow of what he's, what he's gleaned through the years during his own times of meditating on the Word. Matthew thirteen fifty two comes to mind. He's able to share from his own deep treasure chest what God has revealed to him in his quiet time in the Word. And God's people soak that up and to much benefit. So, my friends, my, my fellow preaching friends, press into the Lord and know him well. Number two, walk in holiness. First Peter 1 and verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. If knowing and loving God is, is of supreme importance in the life of the preacher, which it is, holiness is right there near the top of the list. Ian e. Bounds said on one occasion, it is not great talents or great learning or great preachers that God needs, but men... Uh, Men great in holiness, great in faith, great in love, great in fidelity, great for God. Men always um, preaching by holy sermons in the pulpits, by holy lives, live it out. These can mold a generation for God. 
So these men, quote, men great in holiness, can mold a generation for God. If you're, if you're not a man of God, it will be very difficult to stand before the people of God to preach the Word of God. Um, Robert Murray McShine, I think that's how you say his name, he was a Scottish preacher uh, in the 19th century. He said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. And in some ways, he's right. There's no faster way to weaken or shipwreck what you're teaching and doing in your ministry than to compromise with sin. Why is sin so detrimental to a preacher's ability to teach? Well, let me just give you the short list, okay? Ephesians 4.30, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Romans 6.21, it brings about feelings of shame. Psalm 51.12, it robs you of the joy of your salvation. 1 John 1.7, obscures fellowship with the Lord. Proverbs 22 and verse 8, Psalm 118.15, it brings sorrow. Proverbs 11.27, multiplies your problems. Romans 6, 19 leads to more sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it dishonors God. 1 Peter 3, 7 and verse 12, it will hinder your prayer life. 1 Corinthians 9, 27 will make your spiritual life powerless. Jeremiah 5, 25 causes good things from God to be withheld. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 1 inhibits spiritual growth. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 brings chastisement from the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.21 prevents you from being fit a fit vessel for the Lord to use. 1 Corinthians 10.21 pollutes Christian fellowship. 1 Corinthians 11.28 and 29 prevents participating properly in the Lord's Supper. Romans 6.21, Galatians 6.7 and 8 brings about corruption. And last but not least, let's throw this one in, free for nothing, 1 Corinthians 11.30, 1 John 5.16, it can endanger your physical life and your physical health. So, is it any good? Is it any count? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. No wonder Peter says to be holy in all of your behavior, 1 Peter 1.15. Sin's price tag is way more, fellas, than you want to pay. I promise. It, it will kill you. Prioritize your holiness. Be careful with what you allow into your home, into your mind. Be careful with the company that you keep. If it's internet protection, if it's accountability software, if it's whatever it is, pray for a victorious, holy life. Pray for sanctification. Build you a group of mighty men around you who hold you accountable. Pray that God will deliver you from the snares that the devil is going to set for you. Okay, Deliver us from evil. That's kind of the OG prayer. Be a vessel of honor, a vessel God can continue to find useful. Paul said, 2 Timothy 2, 21-22, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, and here's, here's, here's beautiful, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Fellas, if you're not in the T epistles, the first and second Thessalonians, if you're not in the first and second Timothy and the Titus, you need to be. That needs to be your regular weekly uh, reading. So the question is, do you want to be useful to the master? Yes. Well, walk in holiness. Number three, love the people you preach to. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. John said that First 1 John 3, 14. He said it so nonchalantly. Oh yeah, we do that because we love the brethren. We know who we are. We know that we're now in eternal life because we love the brethren. It's amazing. Uh, George Pentecost finished a discord in the city of Edinburgh. Horatius Bonner put his hand upon his shoulder and said, you love to preach to men, don't you? And Dr. Pentecost answered, yes. Then Mr. Bonner said, do you love the men you preach to. See, to love preaching is one thing, but to love those to whom you preach is absolutely quite another. Some teachers end up loving reading and studying and teaching and ministry more than they love the people, and, and that should never be the case. First Corinthians 13, that old mysterious uh, marriage passage that has nothing to do with marriage and everything about the worship of the church, and in particular, the edification of the church, First Corinthians 13, 1 and 2, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, teaching, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. The primary motivation to read, study, and prepare sermons should be our love for God and for His people. And not just for His people, but for all people, just as much as He loves them all. 
not just not just the Christians, but but even the the lost. Our love for people leads us to want to want the very best for them, and, and we believe that teaching them God's word will lead them into fuller lives, lives that will glorify Christ, and bring them into God's very best. So that is why we read and study and prepare sermons. God forbid we get our priorities out of order, and have more love for learning and sermon development than the Savior and the saints the sermons are for. Wallace Ben, I'm going to agree with this fellow. He said, my concern is that preachers have little pastoral contact with ordinary people except in emergencies. Indeed, we must honestly admit that some preachers appear not to like people much, withdrawing from contact with them and sometimes justifying it by saying they believe in the priority of preaching. I believe passionately in the priority of preaching. But this must not be used to distance us from the involvement with people. You who are called um, as Christians by God, who teaches word. Uh, I want to encourage you, cultivate relationships with people that you teach and you preach to. Uh, talk to them after teaching. Get to know them. Um, become a part of their lives. Find out how they are doing. Uh, of course, visit them in the hospital. Meet them for lunch. Listen to their struggles. Pray with them while you're with them. Spending time with sheep will not only benefit them, it will benefit your preaching. It is much easier to know your listeners' questions and needs and struggles and challenges when you know your flock. Don't just put a question box in the back and say, y'all fill it up if you have any questions. That's so impersonal. That's so, bleh, don't do that. Know these people. Love these people. Number four, run to the throne of grace often. <laughs> Fellas, we need it. Uh, R.A. Torrey said, how little time the average Christian spends in prayer. We are too busy to pray, and so we are too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish little. Many services, but few con conversions. Much machinery, but few results. I wish he wouldn't have stepped on all of our toes just then. He said preparing sermons and preaching them is no easy task. And so, obviously, we know that. It is It is full-heartedly fellow, who, the full-heartedly fellow, or full-hearted fellow, uh, who, who jumps into the task of studying and sermon building without first humbly seeking God's help. Uh, sh surely, <laughs> surely this is all work that needs God's blessing if it's going to be done well and, and to God's glory. The way to access the help that God wants to provide us is through prayer. The scriptures are filled with the encouragements to pray. Abraham prayed and Abimelech's life was spared and wombs were opened. Okay, Moses prayed, and God's judgment on Israel was stayed. Joshua prayed, and the sun stood still. Hannah prayed, and her womb was opened. Elijah prayed, and it stopped raining for three and a half years. Hezekiah prayed, and 15 years were added to his life. Zacharias and Elizabeth prayed, and John was conceived. Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail, and Peter led the early church. The church prayed for boldness in the face of the Sanhedrin's threats, and the Holy Spirit empowered them to speak the word of God with boldness. That's Acts 4.31. Underline that one and give it to your people. The church prayed, and Peter was released from prison. And these are just encouraging reminders that indeed the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James 5.16. So pray for your study time. Pray for the flock of God. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons. Pray for yourself. Pray for the teaching. Pray for the preaching. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we obtain, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4 and verse 16. Number five. I want to give you this one in, in terms of, in, in, lay this out there and then get into the definition of what I mean by this. Number five. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 4 and verse 31, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that was 100% miraculous. Absolutely, 100% miraculous. Today, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit is because our, our hearts have humbly submitted ourselves to God. We have imbibed and ate His word. It has become our bread of old, Jeremiah. We've, we've put this on our palate. We've digested it. We've, we've prayed over it. We've We've brooded over it, and we've put it out there. And it's God-blessed because it is God-produced, God-willed through His Word. Richard Baxter, is, is what's con he's a fellow who is considered a beloved uh, Puritan preacher uh, and theologian of the 17th century. And uh, if you've not studied Puritans, let me encourage you to do that. They were, 
they were on a restoration movement. I would say most of them were uh, before Campbell and, and Stone and others. But 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 definitely check into the Puritan ways. And, and there are, if, if you want to boil it down to, the church is all about a purist and a, and a puristic and a Puritan lifestyle today. But he said on one occasion, Richard Baxter, he said, Our work requireth greater skill and especially greater life and zeal than any of us bring to it. It is no small matter to stand up in the face of a congregation and to deliver a message of salvation or damnation as from the living God. In the name of the Redeemer, it is no easy matter to speak so plainly that the most ignorant may understand us, and so seriously that the deadest hearts may fill us, and so convincingly the contradicting cavaliers may be silenced. That's true. True indeed. It's not our words, it's His. Um, It is the Holy Spirit who works through our preaching, and it must be Holy Spirit preaching. Uh, It must be Holy Spirit endowed preaching. And we're not talking about some sort of indwelling that miraculously tickles our hearts and gives us the words. It is a true statement indeed that, that the Holy Spirit must give us what to preach, and it must be Holy Spirit preaching. Thankfully, God has not asked you to prepare sermons or stand before His people on your own strength, Ephesians 6 and verse 10. The Bible says that the person who serves in any capacity should do so in the power that God supplies, 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do it as the strength by which God supplies, so that God, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Which means, if this isn't something that I have yielded to and give the Holy Spirit the floor, uh, by my willful heart, yes, it's by my volition. Yes, I choose to do it. Yes, I speak the words. It, no, it's not some uh, miraculous entanglement, um, but it is it is God driven, God done, God produced by the word itself. How can you teach in quote the strength which God supplies? Well, seeing that the strength is something that God supplies. That means that you don't have to manufacture it on your own. The way to access this strength is through prayer. Luke 21, 36. Before I teach, I want, I want to be filled with that power. How do I know? When, I, when I'm praying to God to be filled with that power, to move with that power, not something miraculous, but something that He would that He approves, something that He does, something that He would say. How is it that the Holy Spirit used these men in time past to write this letter that we see in front of us called the Book of Books? How is it that He used their personalities, but it was the words that He gave them, the words that He said? It's the same as preaching is today. We use the words God say and our personalities and our our traits and our characteristics are interwoven in those things. And, and, And it's a beautiful thing. But before I preach, I want to pray, God, I need your help. I need the strength which you supply. I need that because if it's if it's me and it's Jake produced, then God gets no glory from that. First Peter four eleven. I I won't I I tell God I, I pray to God that that I want to minister to the strength which He supplies. I mean Zechariah four six. You want to confess that that apart from Him you can do nothing. John fifteen five. We pray for His help. If we want wisdom, we pray to God. We don't go to a commentary. We pray to God. We pray for insight. We pray for humility, boldness, love, a good memory of what I've studied, and a clear speech to communicate what what He would have me to say or what's appropriate to say, that it would be in taste and in, and in good good tact. And I pray that His people would receive, quote, edification and exhortation and consolation, 1 Corinthians 14.3. I pray that the lost would be saved. I, I thank Him for the privilege of standing before His people to teach them and to, and to preach to them. And then we trust. We trust in the Lord. Remember that He has promised to never leave us. As we go out and teach and make disciples, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, He's with us. And then I walk up to the pulpit. I trust that God is going to bless the going forth of His Word. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, countless times we can sense our own weakness, but we can sense our weakness being turned into strength as a result of God hearing our prayer and answering it according to His will. Now, having having the Holy Spirit's blessing upon my preaching doesn't mean that those who set up, uh, who step up to the pulpit, can slack off in preparation, and uh, and that that can bring me to my next point. And really, really, this is where the rubber meets the road. Number six, it is our duty and our privilege 
to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. Charles Spurgeon said it. So number six, work hard at preaching and teaching. Work your craft, craft your work, and work it. The story is told of a preacher who never prepared during the uh, week, and on a Sunday morning he would sit on the stage while the church was singing, desperately praying, Lord, give your message. <laughs> Lord, give me your message. And one Sunday as he cried out to God for his message, he heard the Lord say, Ralph, here's my message. You're lazy. <laughs> Resist the temptation to be lazy when it comes to studying and preparing sermons and teaching. The Bible says, specifically to the elders, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5 and 17. Notice that. We who teach God's word should be hard workers and for good reason. God is worthy of our, our wholehearted efforts. We are servants working for the most gracious, benevolent master imaginable. Our Heavenly Father who delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. How could we repay him with a slight can at the work that he's appointed us to? Well, we won't. We will gladly work hard for him. Charles Spurgeon often worked 18 hours a day. David Livingston, famous missionary in Africa, once asked, how do you manage to do two men's work in a single day? Spurgeon replied, you have forgotten there are two of us. Two of us, the preacher and the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 says, we are God's fellow workers. You are not alone in your ministry. Paul said, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Colossians 1, 21. If you approach teaching and preaching with laziness, think to yourself, uh, if you approach it with laziness and you think to yourself, well, I, I will just, <laughs> I'll just go up there and maybe the Holy Spirit will give me something. Maybe that ready recollection that that, the, that, that old deacon's been praying for for years is finally going to take a hold. Well, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> You're actually straying from what the Bible says will mark the life of honorable teachers. Hard work. The most fruitful preacher uh, and preaching is the result of the Holy Spirit working through men who work hard, 1 Corinthians 15.10, Colossians 1.20. Some have used Matthew chapter 10, 19 through 20 to say, I'll just trust the Lord to speak through me. Uh, and this little attitude when it comes to sermon preparation. And here, here's what the passage says. Do not worry about how or what you should say or when you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, clearly that's a limited commission. Clearly that's a miraculous dispensation. Clearly he's talking to folks who are going out and doing his will specifically who do not have a New Testament in their hand or a Bible for that fact. They have the scriptures of old. But, but this was a miraculous gift. Was Jesus giving us assurance here that, that we can neglect study and just trust him when it's time to teach? No. As I said, the context in its passage. Start back in verse 16 if you have your open Bible. Matthew 10, verse 16 he says, Behold, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But, but be aware of men. For they will deliver you up to councils and scourge in the synagogues. You will be brought before the governors for kings for my sake and testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So notice the context. When they deliver you up, Jesus said, who would deliver the disciples up? Wolves, enemies of the gospel. Why would the disciples be delivered up? To be scourged, verse 17. To be brought to councils and courts and governors and kings. Jesus was talking about laws and courts, not the church and the home and fellowship. Context matters. Being dragged off to be scourged and standing before governors would, would not allow the disciples time to prepare their defense. It would be then that the Holy Spirit would give them the necessary words as he did the whole New Testament church. And even the boldness to share in the testimonies. Verse 18, Jesus' words were not intended to comfort the person who is too lazy uh, or proud to work hard for, for teaching and preaching. If a man thinks that he's just going to get up there and wing it when he steps up to the pulpit, oh, and just, just trust the Holy Spirit to do something, well, he's going to discover very quickly that is not how the Lord works. The Bible is very clear. 1 Timothy 5, 17, you work hard at preaching and teaching and you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit as you do it. As we close uh, this episode of the podcast, uh, this this one that's airing today, um, I just wanted to rehash and rehearse the heart of where you are uh, as a preacher, as a teacher, and um, as, as a servant. We, we, we serve a good God, and um, 
I pray that this this episode has been um, good for you, good reminder of where we've come from, um, some bullet points to take with you, uh, and looking forward to Friday when I will see or, or speak and, and be with you all then. God be with you in your preaching. All right, welcome back to episode, I guess this is one, for real one this time, season two. Uh, let's just delve right into the preparation uh, of the sermon. Jeremiah 23 and verse 28 said, Let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. So let's just deal with preaching specifically. If you want to take notes, number one, handle God's word with reverence and care. When you sit down to open the Bible and prepare a sermon, realize what it is that you are actually opening. The book that lies before you is the holy, God-breathed, revelation bestowed upon humanity from the very creator of this universe. It is the words of God. Uh, they're not ours. Uh, and so we should, we should dread the, the thought of standing before God's people and maligning it or misinterpreting it or mishandling it or misapplying it in any, uh, any kind of way and, and even unintentionally. It needs to be so serious in your mind what you have in front of you we need to be very careful. Jake, be very careful to deliver God's Word to God's people intact. Don't twist the text. Don't distort the meaning in any way, even, even if it scares you, even if it bothers you, even if it may even contradict a particular teaching or tradition that you've always come to know. God's Word holds the standard. 2 Timothy 2.15, the age-old verse that we love and hold to, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, which, which if I can rightly divide it, then that means that I can wrongly divide it. To have God's approval of your teaching, you must rightly divide the word. In other words, you must handle it correctly. And to do this, you must handle God's word with reverence and be very, very careful when it comes to your own personal take, uh, the interpretation that the Holy Spirit is producing, and how you can expositorily put it out in a way that is relevant to the church in this day and age. So handle the word uh, with reverence and care. Also, in order to, to, to make sure that we don't misapply or, or, or misinterpret or malign in any kind of way, we have to, number two, diligently study this word. Acts 18, verse 24, he was mighty in the scriptures. We're talking about Apollos, and what he knew, what he had, was the old scrolls, uh, and he needed to be taught more accurately. But, but in particular, he was mighty in the scriptures. If you want to teach God's word to other people, you got to be determined to become a very serious student of the scriptures do not be content in just reading the bible as as we've often said in this in this podcast look at this book as something to teach and something to preach not necessarily something just to learn that that may suffice if we're just reading the bible to learn uh for for maybe we might say you know just the old average believer uh joe on the pew but if you're going to teach god's word accurately you must study the bible and i love what root what luke writes about Apollos in the book of Acts in verse 24, he was a, he was a Jew. He was named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, uh, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. Luke says that Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures. He had a great grasp on, on the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and that's something every teacher of the Scriptures should desire to have, not just the Old, but the New. I, I've heard folks say, well, well, we're a New Testament church, and you need to preach out of the New Testament. Well, don't go to the book of Hebrews then, because you're going to have no idea if you don't have a good, right understanding of the Old Testament. Um, those are just ignorant folks. You and I need to have the desire to be mighty in the Scriptures. Now, how does one develop a great grasp on the Scriptures? Well, think about Ezra. Uh, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances Israel. Ezra made a decision... I'm personally going to study the Word of God. I'm going to set my heart, not just the actions, but his heart, the innermost. And the actions always follow. So that's what we need to do. 
very, very well known in religious circles, John MacArthur, he said, a young man said to me, what is the real key to great preaching? And he was kind of starry-eyed, and I'm sure he expected some spiritual, you know, answer. And he said, well, it's, it's the ability to keep your rear end in the chair till you understand the text. And he says, the boy was shocked. And he says, yes, that's the real key. What separates great preaching from poor preaching is whether you know what you're talking about or not. Studying until you really understand the text is vitally important to good preaching. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's, it's uh, long. It's, it's consuming work. It takes time. It takes deducing the original language. It takes uh, grammar and syntax and all that sort of stuff. But it's worth it. It's eternally worth it. Uh, I once heard a story of a, a world-famous violin player. Somehow, uh, somebody asked him on one occasion, uh, asked her, actually, uh, how she got so good at playing. And her answer <laughs> was planned neglect. <laughs> now you think, what in the world is planned neglect? And that was an odd answer. And the person you know, questioned her on this, and she explained. She said, there were many things that used to demand my time. When I went to my room after breakfast, I made my bed, straightened the room, dusted, and did whatever seemed necessary. When I finished my work, I turned to my violin and to practice, and that system prevented me from accomplishing what I should on the violin. So I reversed things. I deliberately planned to neglect everything else until my practice period was complete, and that program of planned neglect is the secret of my success. That should inspire us realistically. Uh, planned neglect. Uh, we were told in preaching school, don't allow the brethren to, t to steal your time of study. Uh, my preacher growing up, Steve McCaslin, uh, out of McMinnville, Tennessee, he came to Adairsville when I was, I don't know, maybe five or six, and he was there for 18 years in the pulpit. And when I went to preaching school, that's something that he told me and he told my brother as we both went, and, um, and, and even a few other guys who left from there and went to, to Memphis, and he said, he said, don't allow the brethren to, to, to steal your study time. So, plan neglect. We, knowing the importance and value of true biblical expository preaching, we've got to understand that. Knowing that it is God's Word alone that He promises will not return void, Isaiah 55, 11. Knowing that it is the Holy Scriptures which are able to make us wise uh, for salvation, 2 Timothy 3, 15. We need to know uh, that it is God's Word alone that is the living and powerful, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, Hebrews 4 and verse 12. And for your notes on this, knowing, knowing it is God's Word that makes a person uh, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.17. May I encourage you, if you're planning on teaching, if, you're, if you plan on preaching God's Word, um, plan on neglecting some things in your life. That may mean that you turn off the television, that you cancel the cable, that you let your, your subscription expire, uh, missing around the golf, getting rid of PlayStation, you know, checking your Twitter, your Facebook, your Instagrams, or whatever. Uh, do all of that less. Plan neglect. Exam, examine your weekly routine. Uh, what, do you, what do you waste your time doing? Could you dedicate some of the time or all of that time to studying the Word? And I bet you could if, you, if you'll purpose in your heart, like Ezra, to study that Word. And I want to talk about, you know, the studying aspect a little later on. Um, but, but I want to end this, this particular uh, thought on this point um, with a reminder from G. Campbell Morgan. He said, The supreme work of Christian of the Christian minister is the work of preaching. This is a day in which one of our great perils is that of doing a thousand little things to neglect, to the neglect of the one thing, which is preaching. There are a thousand little things that you and I can get involved with, but we've got to neglect those. Don't neglect the preaching. Where I'm at at Piedmont Road, my particular lane is pulpit ministry. I'm told to stay in my lane. Thankfully, my shepherds allow me to do that. They don't expect me to be an elder or a deacon. Um, Jake, you're the pulpit minister. Excel in the ministry of, of pulpit preaching. Uh, you're not um, connections minister with Paul Sperlin. You're not uh, 
church secretary. You're not one of the deacons. You're not with the Georgia School of Preaching, David Decker. Uh, we want you to stay in your lane, which means I have to say no to some people, even some good-hearted people who would have me delve into some of their work with them. Uh, it, it is a serious nature um, and necessary that we, we plan neglect. Um, so there are a thousand things that we could get into, and especially good things. Um, but even more so today, we have to be particular um, all the distractions, everything that's fighting for our attention, put them away. Put them away. Plan neglect those things. Let's shift into um, into maybe a practical aspect or how, how can this affect my personal work, my, my actual work this week. I want you to study as early in the week as possible for an upcoming message. I, I go here, this is October, and a month from now I'm leaving for Austin, Texas, and I'll be out there roughly a week. And uh, myself and Denny Howell, another preacher up in Ottawa, Tennessee, uh, we're going to go and get away and uh, just breathe and refresh, scrap our minds of what this season, this, this past year has been, uh, and plan those sermons uh, for the next year. Uh, and just take that time, take that sabbatical. But, but in a particular way, uh, for you, you know, in, in your local work, Study as early as you possibly can for the upcoming message. Stephen Alford, he said, he said, messages mature over time. Relevant thoughts and insights can come to mind while driving in the car, waiting in a line, or even in the middle of an important conversation. So I want to urge you, always begin studying for an upcoming teaching uh, lesson or, 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 or preaching, um, you know, Maybe particularly if it's a Sunday, maybe start on Monday. I personally take Mondays off. I'm exhausted Sunday. I've died in the pulpit. I got to heal. I don't answer my phone. I don't do nothing. I purposefully don't go anywhere or see anybody as best as I can. Uh, but Tuesday, um, rest assured, my mind's cranking. If I'm preaching on Sunday, resting on Monday, then I'm going to read through my scriptures on Tuesday. Uh, things that I'm going to be talking about for the next week. And this allows me, uh, gives me some days to mull over what I'm going to be teaching on, what I'm going to be preaching on, um, praying for wisdom on how I should preach it, how I should teach my classes, you know, thinking about illustrations, um, applying it to my own life, how to make it a, a applicable, uh, really relatable. And so I want to encourage you to do likewise. Give yourself a head start um, when it comes to the preaching. Study it, yes. Make it your priority, yes. Uh, but do it as early as you possibly can. Um, the better off you'll be, the quicker you start this. And uh, it's going to help you prepare those messages. So, number next, if you will, I think this is four. But saturate your teaching with the Word of God. Isaiah 55, 11, we've already mentioned it. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. And without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it, it seems to me that the more and more we find men standing behind the pulpit today, um, so many of them, even in the brotherhood, are neglecting to heed Paul's words to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2. Many read a verse, a paragraph, but then launch into all kinds of other things, and there's a story and a joke, and, and there's quotes from books or video clips and everything but the word. It's, it's about the PowerPoint. It's about the notes. It's whatever. Uh, and sadly, the, re the result is malnourished, underfed believers. They, and what the deal is, is they don't know the scriptures. When you preach and teach like that on a regular basis, they do not know the scriptures. They have shallow walks with the Lord. They're easy prey for the cults. Uh, false teachers are everywhere. They're going to get gobbled up. And... Um, all kinds of unbiblical teaching that, that, that blows through the church because your half-heartedness uh, with your preaching concerning the Word of God. Such a tragedy in our generation. And I think some of the blame for the success of the, you know, quote, emerging church movement uh, and its liberal, you know, heretical theology falls at the feet of seeker-sensitive churches. Um for the past few decades, churches have neglected to teach God's Word in any kind of an in-depth, expositional manner. And as a result, they've raised up a generation of young people in the church who don't know the Word of God. 
And so when somebody hands the people uh, in their congregation um, books like, uh, gracious, I don't know, Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell, uh, The Shack by William Young, uh, Everything Must Change by Brian McLaren or, or whatever, this is, this is how people continue to go in this direction that they're going. There's not an emphasis on the Word of God. Um, you know, I hear some folks talk about we need we need this particular book or this particular book and what book do you have to teach from or or what can I do and, and not not knocking a book but don't allow the book to take the place of the scripture don't allow the book to lead the conversation don't allow the book to dominate the room um, usually usually a book is good uh, to help you get started usually a book is good to give you ideas. Um, but, but to give a book uh, to the church or to the classroom uh, and say, y'all just have at it and have fun, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when Satan kisses you right in the mouth with some false theology that the church has now grabbed a hold of. Most of the church are sheep. You've got to remember that. And they're not able to spot anything unbiblical in them. When they, when they turn to Oprah, the same thing goes. Uh, when they read Joel Osteen, same thing. It, it all sounds fine to them, and it's heartbreaking. Now, what would have prevented this? Paul told Timothy uh, that, you know, and to us by implication, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his second coming, uh, at his coming, preach the word, Second Timothy 4, 1 and 2. He didn't say make sure you include a citation from the word. He didn't say preach from the word as though it was some sort of launching pad for all of the other stuff you want to say. Paul said, preach the word. Your messages should be saturated with Scripture. They should ooze Scripture. And if you're listening to this podcast, and you're not a preacher or a teacher, if your preachers and teachers are not just filled with the Word of God, and I'm not necessarily talking about a preacher who gets up there and uses the Bible as a reference book and just fires off rapid fire, a bunch of verses that you that you don't even have time to read your Bible. I think that's that, that also cripples the church. That, that, that also is the mindset where the preacher is the one who knows it all and we go and listen to him. Um, expositional, use a verse or a few verses and delve into those verses. Get them to open their Bibles. Uh, I don't care if it's even a digital Bible. doesn't matter. Just get them to open their Bibles. I, I sat in on a Bible study, if that's what you want to call um, a while back, um, and um, well, maybe this has happened to you, where the the preacher or the teacher, whoever's conducting the study, uh, started off teaching uh, by showing a, a ten minute clip from a movie. Then he went to talk about how uh, the movie clip was illustrative of the fact that Christians need times to rest. There was no opening of the Bible. And you may be thinking, he's got a 30-minute slot to teach, and he just wasted most of the time showing a movie clip and talking about the movie. And when that happens, um, when, I, when I'm in a classroom or, or I'm listening to somebody preach, and that's how they do things, I just want to scream. I want to stand up, and I want to say, bring out the book, Nehemiah 8.1. <laughs> preach the Word of God, Second Timothy 4, 2. Um, I didn't, but maybe I should have. In churches all over the world, especially within the body of Christ, this can this can happen. People are suffering under this kind of spiritually starved teaching week in and week out. And but 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 think about how prosperous wherever God's word is, and it's consistently laid open. Think about how prosperous that actually is. Listen to what God likens the scriptures to. I'm going to give you a list of these things, of how God views. His scripture. Number one, water. Water that washes clean, Ephesians 5.26. Seed that can bring forth fruit, Mark 4.14. Milk that nourishes, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Meat that satisfies, Hebrews 5.14. Fire that cleanses, Jeremiah 23.29. A hammer that shatters, Jeremiah 23.29. Uh, a sword that cuts deeply, Hebrews 4.12. Medicine to keep us from getting sick, uh, sick of sin, Psalm 119.11. A lamp 
to our feet, a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105, a mirror that reflects ourselves to us, James 1, 23, 25, a tutor that leads us to Christ, Galatians 3, 24, a counselor that comforts us, Romans 15, 4, and that which revives us, Psalm 119, 50. It's also a forecaster that never fails, Second Peter 1, 19, and that which makes us wiser than our enemies, Psalm 119, 98. How vital and how important then God's word is in the life of the believer. Water, seed, milk, meat, fire, hammer, sword, medicine, lamp, mirror, tutor, counselor, revives, a reviver, a forecaster, and makes us all the wiser. And the, great, the greatest thing that could happen in the church today would be a wholehearted return by men who occupy the pulpit to expository preaching. When I say expository preaching, I mean preaching that is committed to these tenets, opening the Word of God, unpacking what the Bible says, explaining what it means, illustrating the passage when it is necessary, it's not always necessary, and giving a clear, passionate exhortation on how it applies to the lives of the believers and the non-believers. If more preachers and Bible teachers and in all sorts of ministers, youth, women, whatever, would return to this method of preaching and teaching, it would, there is no doubt, start. There would be a massive revival uh, amongst God's people. Now, obviously, we can't change, and we can't do much to change what other people are or are not doing in the church, but we can resolve in my own personal life and in the own church that I work and labor to do or continue to do the very thing that the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul, preach the word. And perhaps, as God blesses our efforts, other preachers are going to see it, other churches are going to see it. Other church members are going to see it from around the, our little worlds. And they're going to see that the church is thriving. The church is growing. And they're going to ask the question, what are y'all doing over there? What in the world is going on over there? Y'all must be liberal because you're getting bigger. God forbid the church grows. I've heard people say that. Oh, they grew a crowd over there. They must be doing something liberal. How stupid could, that, could, could, could a person be to say such a thing? God's word does not return void. Have you ever thought that the church is actually over there working? Should people inquire? Yes. And when they inquire, we will unashamedly tell them it's the Lord. <laughs> We're just loving people. We're consistently giving the people the water that washes clean. It's the seed that brings forth fruit, the milk that nourishes, the meat that satisfies, the fire that cleanses, some medicine that keeps us from getting sick with sin. And it might just inspire these folks to do the exact same. I wanted to give you these things as you teach and preach God's Word. Remember who we are. Remember whose we are. Remember what responsibility we have. And it's my prayer as you go out and about preaching and teaching God's Word that you will be, you will understand that you are blessed in your deeds. Just be faithful. Don't worry about what people think. Just preach the Word of God. And listen, the truth will stand when the world's on fire. We need to be standing with it. God bless you in your preaching and in your teaching.